Welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vaca. And I'm Keith Berthew. We're two travelers with a passion for exploring world heritage sites that have been designated as having outstanding value to humanity by the United Nations. We'll spend each episode exploring these places, their history, the people who built them, and now save them for all our benefit. One of the bureaus within the United Nations is UNESCO, which stands for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It was created to encourage the identification and preservation of cultural and natural heritage around the world. What makes the concept of World Heritage Sites really unique is the idea that these places belong to all people, no matter where they physically live. We're going to release episodes in the order by year these sites were originally added to the list, starting with the first sites in 1978. episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to the historic center of Krakow, which is the central district and once served as the capital of the country, Poland. The historic center of Krakow, one of the oldest cities in Poland, is located at the base of a famous castle called Royal Wawel on the River Vistula in southern Poland. There are three main urban areas of the city, the medieval chartered city of Krakow, the Wawel Hill Complex, and the town of Kazimierz, which includes the suburb of Stratum. The entire site is a tribute to European urban planning, which is characterized by multiple architectural styles, from late Romanesque to more modern. The center of this 13th century merchant's town has Europe's largest market square. It has historic houses, palaces, and churches, as well as the remainders of 14th century military fortifications. The medieval site of Kazimierz with its ancient synagogues, make up the southern part of the town, as well as the Jagiellonian University, one of the oldest universities in Europe. There is also the Gothic Cathedral, where the kings of Poland are buried, and a trumpet call has been sounded every hour on the hour for over the past 630 years. Wawel Hill further shows the importance of the city. Not only is it the dominant feature of the historic center, it's a former royal residence and necropolis. The medieval town of Kazimierz, in which the suburb of Stratum is located, was chartered in 1335. This area was shaped by the complex interplay of the Jewish and Catholic faiths, along with their respective customs, practices, and cultures. So I have to say, the city has over a thousand years of incredibly impactful history. I am incredibly excited about it. And I actually went down a rabbit hole for hours and hours from researching for this episode, and I enjoyed every minute of it. This city has so much history, Abigail and I had to work hard to condense it all to the most important parts. We focused on editing with a perspective of actually visiting the city, and that was tough. Just like any greatest hits album of music, many will feel that we left out the, quote, best parts. But if we were to do this history of the city justice, This would be a five-plus-hour podcast episode, and I'm not sure many of you would hang with us for that long. Abigail and I will give you an overview of some of the history of Krakow, but we both want to stress that if you find this interesting, make a point of researching the rest of it. There are amazing characters and events that shape this city's history, and you will not be disappointed. Taking us all the way back to the beginning, archaeological studies show that there were settlements as early as the Paleolithic period, as far back as 50,000 BC. 
But by the 7th to 8th century, these early sediments developed into an important trade area for amber. There is a legend dating back to this time surrounding the founding of this city. The legend takes us back to the mythical ruler Krakus in the 8th century AD. So the story is that the sediment was above a cave that housed a hungry dragon that was terrorizing the town. The king at the time offered his daughter's hand in marriage to any knight who could slay the dragon. Of course, many knights tried to slay the dragon or force it out, but none were successful. The story continues to say that a shoemaker's apprentice named Krakus came up with a plan. He bought a sheep, filled it with sulfur, sewed it back up, and placed it outside the dragon's cave. The hungry dragon saw this offering and swallowed the whole thing. The dragon's own fire then ignited the sulfur and the dragon burned, allowing the settlement the freedom to flourish. Krakus wed this daughter, became prince, and eventually king. And Krakow literally means City of Krak. Here's an interesting tidbit to look for when you're visiting. On the left side of the entrance to Wawel Cathedral, there are large bones displayed. These are the storied dragon bones from the legend, but are most likely the bones of a woolly mammoth or maybe a whale. Before Poland became a country, Krakow was the capital of the Vistulans, who were a medieval tribe. The first mention of the name of the city in any written records dates back to 966, when a traveler named Abraham ben Jacob described Krakow as an important center of commerce. In his writing, he also mentions the baptism of Prince Mieszko I in 966, who is considered the founder of the country of Poland. The prince became an accomplished statesman, forging many alliances and even entered into agreements with former enemies to the benefit of the country. The prince took Krakow and created the Kingdom of Poland towards the end of the 10th century. By that time, iconic buildings within the city such as the Royal Walwell Castle, the Rotunda of St. Felix and Adalktis, Romanesque churches, a cathedral, and a basilica were being built. Sometimes after 1042, a man named Casimir I the Restorer made Krakow the seat of the Polish government. In a story that seems to repeat itself throughout the history of this beautiful city, Krakow was almost completely destroyed by a Mongol invasion of Poland in 1241, and the city was rebuilt in 1257 in almost the same exact form. But then again, in 1259, just after being fully rebuilt, the city was ravaged once again by the Mongols, a mere 18 years after the previous raid. The Mongols tried again to raid the city for a third time in 1287, but this attack was unsuccessful. The city was eventually surrounded by a 1.9 mile wall that had 46 towers and 7 entrances. Two of the famous entrances are called St. Florian's Gate, which still survives today, and Krakow Barbican, which is a circular fortification that served as a checkpoint for those who were entering the city. These fortifications took almost two centuries to be completed. Krakow rose to even greater political, economic, and cultural heights in 1364 under the direction of Casimir III, known as Casimir the Great of Poland. He founded Jagiellonian University, which is known as the Academy of Krakow, the second Central European University. A truly dark turn took place in the 15th century when extremist clergy started to advocate violence. Unfortunately, this is a pattern that you'll see throughout the history of Krakow, violence against those who have differing religious beliefs. By 1469, 
employers were generally refusing to hire those of Jewish descent, and Jewish residents were expelled from their old settlement to Spiglarska Street. In 1494, a large fire in Krakow that started in the Jewish district spread to neighboring Christian ones, destroying most of the Jewish quarter and a significant part of the city. Following the fire, a wave of anti-Jewish attacks took place. By 1495, King John Albert I expelled Jewish citizens from the city walls of Krakow altogether. During this time, in the 15th century, the Renaissance, which had its origins in Italy, arrived in Krakow. Many Italian artists, architects, and scientists, including Santi Gucci, Matteo Gucci, and even the famed Nicholas Copernicus, the astronomer, arrived in Krakow. If you visit, you'll see their impact throughout the city. By 1465, further progress came when the first printing press was opened in the city. Krakow University has actually preserved the oldish Polish print, a 1474 wall almanac that is chock full of important medieval information. As more opened throughout the city in the early 1500s, these presses produced many of the important works of the Renaissance. The exchange of ideas continued, and several more important cultural events took place. For example, Sigismund I brought in Italian chefs who introduced Italian cuisine to the city. And in 1520, the largest church bell at the time was cast, named the Sigismund Bell after, obviously, King Sigismund I, and hangs in the Walwell Cathedral Tower today. The bell weighs almost 28,000 pounds. It's considered one of Poland's national symbols, and it has been rung on some of the most significant moments in the history of Poland, including the German invasion in 1939, Poland's entry into the European Union in 2004, and on the occasions of each visit by Pope John Paul II, who was the Archbishop of Krakow and the first non-Italian Pope since 1523. Further significant political change happened in 1572. King Sigismund II died without an heir, and the throne passed to Sigismund III of the Swedish House of Vasa. His reign changed Krakow dramatically, as he moved the government from Krakow to Warsaw in 1596. From here, even though we are skipping a lot of the city's history, we're going to fast forward to the late 18th century. In the late 18th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was divided three times by its expansionist neighbors, Imperial Russia, the Austrian Empire, and the Kingdom of Prussia. This is yet another dark time in Poland's history, known as the Polish Partitions. After the first two partitions, Krakow was still part of the much smaller Polish nation. Then, in 1794, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, who was actually a veteran of the Continental Army in the American Revolutionary War, gave a famous speech that initiated a revolt against partitioning powers known as the Kosciuszko Uprising in Krakow's famous Market Square. The Polish army, including many untrained peasants with only scythes, fought against the partitioning armies, but larger forces ultimately defeated the revolt. The Prussian army took Krakow in June of 1794 and looted the Polish royal treasure kept at Wawot's castle. This treasure was secretly melted down to make coins by Frederick Wilhelm III, while the precious stones and pearls were sold. This makes Poland one of a very few number of states with a long history of statehood and monarchy 
to have lost its coronation insignia. As a result of this era of partitions by other countries, and despite some heroic defense by the people of Poland, Poland ceased to be a country in 1795 and wouldn't be on the map again for another 123 years. When Napoleon Bonaparte of the French Empire captured part of what had once been Poland, he established the Duchy of Warsaw in 1807 as an independent state. Krakow was taken away from the Austrian Empire and then added to the Duchy of Warsaw in 1809. The Congress of Vienna, however, in 1815, gave Krakow partial independence as the free city of Krakow. After the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, Austria granted partial autonomy to Galicia, which was a part of the Austrian Empire, and also made Polish a language of government. As this form of Austrian rule was much more lenient than that of the previous Russian rule, Krakow became a Polish national symbol and started to becoming referred to as the Polish Mecca. Several important commemorations took place in Krakow during this period from 1866 to 1914, including the 500th anniversary of the Battle of Grunwald by the Polish against the Teutonic Order in 1910. In 1901, the city installed running water and the first electric streetcars, which was earlier than other Polish cities. The most significant political and economic development of the first decade of the 20th century in Krakow was the creation of Greater Krakow, which was the incorporation of the surrounding smaller suburban communities into one single administrative unit. Thanks during this time to migration from the countryside, Krakow's population doubled from approximately 91,000 to 183,000 between 1900 and 1915. A little later, during the First World War, Russian troops besieged Krakow during the winter, and thousands of residents left the city. As a result of the Great War, with the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Poles liberated the city and it was included with a newly reborn Polish state in 1918. After 123 years, Poland was once again on the map. During World War II, Poland was split again at the onset of the war. Nazi forces entered the city on September 6, 1939. The residents were saved from attack by the famously courageous Stanislaw Komeczy, who bravely met the advancing German troops alone and urged them to stop shooting because the city was defenseless. He then offered himself up as a hostage and was later murdered by the Gestapo. The Germans began mass arrests and deportation of individuals to concentration camps. They primarily targeted those with influence, such as teachers and other well-educated individuals. Many relics were looted as well. One example, among many, being the statue of Adam Mikowitz, which was stolen and melted for scrap. The Jewish population was first ghettoized and then systematically murdered by the Nazis. Two concentration camps near Krakow include Plazo and the extermination camp most of you are probably familiar with called Auschwitz. Specific events in and around the Krakow Jewish ghetto and the nearby concentration camps were portrayed in the movie Schindler's List. If you have not seen this movie, it is truly one of the best films ever made. You have to watch it. I do an annual rescreen every year, and I still cry every time at the end. The Germans also ran two forced labor camps out of the city from 1942 to 1944. In addition, they operated a POW camp for Dutch, 
Belgian, and French prisoners. In 1944, during and after the Warsaw Uprising, the Germans deported many of the Poles from Warsaw to Krakow. Krakow remained as the capital of Nazi-occupied Poland until they excavated the city on January 17, 1945, in the face of the advance of the Red Army. Soviet forces entered the city just two days later. Many people celebrate that Krakow's buildings remained virtually undestroyed by the war. Originally, there was a story that Marshal Ivan Konov of the Soviet Army pulled off a stunning maneuver that caught the Germans by surprise, who were not able to mine and destroy the city because they were worried about being surrounded, so they escaped in haste. His story was so circulated that a statue of Marshal Ivan Konov was erected and he was even given honorary citizenship of Krakow. The real story that came out later is much less heroic for the Marshal. Uncovered German orders showed that the Germans were simply not interested in defending the city. They blew up the bridges approaching the city and sealed the dam for the river, making the river impassable to the Red Army. This gave the Germans plenty of time to retreat from the city and even spend time pilfering tremendous numbers of important Polish artworks at the same time. During the war, over 4,000 Jews resurfaced in Krakow. By 1946, Polish Jews returning from the Soviet Union further increased the Jewish population in the city to approximately 10,000. But many of these people emigrated because of the fear of pogroms, which are organized massacres of particular ethnic groups. Today, only about 1,000 Jews live in Krakow, but only 200 identify themselves as members of the Jewish community. During this time, the government of the People's Republic of Poland ordered the construction of the country's largest steel mill in the suburbs. This was regarded by some as an attempt to kind of diminish the influence of Krakow's intellectual and artistic heritage by industrialization of the city and by attracting a new working class. One interesting fact out of this is that on October 16, 1978, Krakow's Archbishop, Karol Rochula, was elevated to the papacy as John Paul II, the first non-Italian pope in 455 years. So Krakow's overall population has quadrupled since the end of World War II. Something I thought was interesting was that after the collapse of the Soviet Empire and the subsequent joining of the European Union, offshoring of information technology work from other nations became important to the economy of Krakow in recent years. There are numerous multinational companies in Krakow now, including IBM and General Electric. And all of that, my friends, was only the tip of the iceberg. We want to remind you that if you're planning on visiting or simply want to learn more, there are hundreds of resources you can search for on the internet. I'm excited to transition to talking about how you can visit all of the places we just spoke about. So if you want to travel to Krakow, you can get there by flying into John Paul II International Airport. Once there, it's only about a 20-minute train ride to the city center. The best time of the year to visit and most popular are between the months of April and September because it gets warm but not piping hot. You could visit during the winter if you like, uh, just know you're going to get temperatures of 20 degrees Fahrenheit or below with a few inches of snow. Certainly not my cup of tea, however, I like warm weather. And if you want to break out the Rosetta Stone or Duolingo, as we said earlier, Polish is the only official language. However, English is spoken widely and fluently in the very touristy areas, like the center, 
but it might be a good idea to know key phrases like hello, thank you, please, and of course, where can I get a beer? Based on my research, Krakow appears to be a bit pricey compared to some European cities. If you want to visit some of the museums and churches, you can get a museum and travel pass to get discounts on 40 plus sites and public transportation such as the tram. Many sites have free admission days where you can enter at certain times, such as the Rhineck Underground Museum, for example. They have specific days where you can enter for free. I mentioned it before, but another popular site to visit includes Oscar Schindler's factory. I know you and I always like to take advantage of that during our travels. Hey, how many people visit annually and what kind of crowds can somebody expect? I've seen that anywhere from 11 to 14 million people visit Krakow annually, with the majority of visitors being Polish residents from other parts of the country vacationing. Over 800,000 people live in the city, and not just in the historic center. I couldn't actually find the numbers for the population in the historic center specifically. It's also interesting that they have a large percentage of the population being between the ages of 18 to 30 because Krakow has 24 universities. This also may be another reason to go during the summer. I would bet many students go home, which would make it less crowded. In terms of demographics, I kind of went down a rabbit hole researching the religious representation. It's probably the most diverse I've seen so far in doing research for this podcast. There are a wide variety of religions represented within the historic center. Judaism, Roman Catholicism, Polish Orthodox, Polish Catholic, Church of the Latter-day Saints, Protestant, you name it. And as a note, Krakow actually has one of the highest rates of mass attendance in the world. From what I discovered, many locations are closed on Sundays as a result, and there's actually a ban in Poland as of 2023 on having shopping malls open on Sundays, so keep that in mind when making plans. All right, now my favorite thing. What about the food? Traditional mainstays include foods like pierogies, which are dumplings with different fillings, potato and cheese being most traditional. For those who haven't had them, they're almost like a larger Polish ravioli. And then there's kielbasa and sauerkraut, which is a type of sausage and cabbage, usually in brine. And of course, potato pancakes. However, the historic center has their own national snack they're known for, called Abwarzonik Krakowski. Forgive me if I slightly mispronounce that. And these are basically large circular knotted breads, which have some sort of seeds such as poppy seeds on top. There are markets and small vendors you can buy these from on every corner. Yeah, pierogies are one of my favorites. So if you listen to any of our previous episodes, you know that Abigail loves to research the legends, the conspiracy theories, and the paranormal for each of these sites. So, Abigail, what'd you find on this one? So the first thing I'll cover isn't really a conspiracy or urban legend, but it's actually a true tale I thought was super creepy and interesting. It actually reminded me of the tales around King Tut's tomb. So in 1970, a group of researchers opened the crypt of Casimir IV Jagiellonian, which was located in Wawel Castle. Between 1970 and 1973, 
at least four of the men who uncovered it passed away under mysterious circumstances, and many others became quite ill. Locals thought that the crypt was cursed and that this was karma for disturbing his remains. However, this was later debunked through testing as it was determined that when the crypt was opened, a deadly bacteria inside the tomb was unleashed. The second tale is around vampires, partially an unproven legend, but it ends up getting woven into a true crime story. So, vampires have shaped Krakow's mythology and legends for hundreds of years. When researchers have excavated graves over the last hundred years, they were shocked to find in many cases the bodies had their heads removed. This is because they believed that these individuals were vampires, and doing this would render them unable to come back to life and suck their victim's blood. However, it's likely that these individuals had porphyria or passed away from another disease that caused aversion to sunlight and other classic vampiric symptoms. This links us to the case of Carol Cott, who has not so affectionately been referred to as the vampire of Krakow. Growing up, it was noted that he would drink animal blood and may have turned to lusting after human blood, though this detail hasn't been confirmed. Of course, he escalated from torturing and killing animals to murdering humans. He was convicted of killing two people and attempted the murder of at least 10 others, with his youngest victim being just 8 years old. He was executed for his crimes at just 21 years old, and it makes one wonder, maybe there was some truth to the locals' belief all those years ago that they were, in fact, living among vampires. I actually have a legend that I would like to cover. If you visit Krakow, you'll note that every hour on the hour, a trumpeter makes a call in the four directions out of the highest tower of St. Mary's Basilica. This trumpet call has said to have been sounded without break for over 600 years. Originally, it was to make the call to open and close the gates to the city, but it is now played every hour four times. This is such a national treasure that the noon call is broadcast by radio all around the world. Here's a recording of the call. You might note something eerie about the way the call ends. It cuts off before it kind of seems finished. Well, there's a reason for this. Legend says that during the 1241 Mongol invasion of the city, the Mongols were approaching the city and the trumpeter played to close the gates and this prevented the Mongols from entering the city unopposed. The trumpeter, however, was shot in the throat by a well-aimed arrow and did not get to finish the call. When you visit, you'll note that the trumpeter waves to the people from the tower after he finishes in each direction. Just to note, you're kind of expected to wave back. It's worth noting that even though this is an incredibly recognized call around the world, no one even knows who wrote it. So part of the work we do to share these sites is to take a look at the future. So Abigail, will you tell us about that? Sure. 
So it sounds like one of the main challenges being faced is due to air pollution. So under communist rule, which Poland was subject to from 1952 to 1989, they experienced a kind of forced industrialization. As a result, they had issues with emissions of sulfur dioxide and other pollutants, which aren't just unhealthy for people to breathe in, but can also cause serious damage to older historic buildings. In the early 1990s, the government started to pass laws requiring stricter regulations, and I'm happy to report that as a result, this has become much less of an issue. I think the future of this site is bright because they're actually learning from their past and pivoting and are really investing in other options to keep the infrastructure safe, such as electric buses, And they're looking to extend their tramway, which will keep travelers coming into this incredible city into the future as well. Thank you for listening to the Global Treasures podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can check us out on YouTube and TikTok as well. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell your friends about us, and leave us a glowing five-star review on your favorite platform. Until next time.